This evening's talk <clears throat> will explore investigation or discrimination of states and the creative process. What is it that enables us to move towards being a Buddha? Or as uh, one of my Burmese teachers said, what makes one a true heir of the Buddha? There's a phrase that the Buddha used, ehipasika. Ehipasika, come and see. And this is an invitation from the Buddha, an invitation to come and see. Not to come and believe, uh, but really to come and see for ourselves what's true. To come and see in this way requires a great interest and a willingness and a courage which includes a growing faith that blossoms out of our own experience. An interest, willingness, and courage to look directly, deeply, and honestly into the body, the heart, and the mind with humility and without relying on what others say is true or what we've heard or what we've read. To come in see in this way requires that we don't settle into the inertia of our habitual perceptions of things. We don't settle into the inertia of our habitual relationships to things or our habitual identifications with our inner and outer experience. This interest, willingness, and courage are the qualities that keep practice alive from the very beginning and then ongoing through all the years of our practice, no matter how many years of practice we have behind us and will go on with. With this evening's talk, we'll explore the the discerning aspect of mindfulness, the aspect of mindfulness that's fueled by the Buddha's invitation, the Buddha's invitation, ehipasika, come and see. And this is the second factor of enlightenment, this investigation or discrimination of states. And as I may have mentioned, I don't remember in an earlier talk, mindfulness is needed in all instances. And uh, as the Buddha said, it's needed in all instances just as a seasoning of salt in all sauces is needed. (laughs) Very practical. (laughs) Mindfulness is a refuge. It's a refuge for the heart, a refuge for the mind, and the factor through the whole of our practice and through the whole of our life that affords us our greatest protection. 
investigation or discrimination of states, both bodily states and mental states, is the activity of mindfulness, the discerning aspect of mindfulness. This aspect, uh, this active aspect of mindfulness is what really clearly illuminates the object. Lighting up all of our sense door and mental experiences right to the core, showing us their individual characteristics and their universal essence, their ultimate reality, we could say. This factor of awakening has the potential to dispel darkness, the darkness of not seeing, the darkness of ignoring how it is, Investigation eliminates bewilderment and confusion. The not seeing, the not knowing of delusion and ignorance. It's kind of like walking into a pitch dark room with a very bright flashlight. When things are brightly lit, what's already present is then clearly seen. and confusions dispelled at that point. In our practice, investigation means that we experience things directly without the mediation of concept. So, for example, and this could be a metaphor for any internal phenomena or movement in the body or state of mind, or for any object uh, that the eye door contacts as we move into the seeing-drawing aspect of this retreat. So, a breath is known. And maybe you see and know, know it at the level of simply knowing in and simply knowing out, which is actually still based in the world of concept. Investigation without putting on the glasses. And then you put on the metaphorical glasses and directly know a long breath or a short breath or a deep or shallow breath. You might simply contact and, uh, and directly contact directly with the movement of the breath the movement of the breath at the nostrils or the movement of the breath in the belly, experiencing the touch sensation in the space between the nostrils and the upper lip or the rising and falling movement in the belly. So now, beginning to move from conceptualizing the breath to the direct experience of the breath. And then you look through the microscope with the lowest power lens on. And maybe then the whole in-breath is known, is felt and known from beginning to end. And you feel and know the whole out-breath from beginning to end. And maybe, much to your surprise, you find that each in-breath and each out-breath isn't necessarily this smooth, ongoing experience that you've been used to. And even though it might be quite subtle, 
You begin to feel it and know it very clearly as maybe happening in tiny segments. In, 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 out, out, out. Rather than this smooth flow that you've always thought it was. As you come closer, getting more and more intimate with the experience of breath, you begin to see it just as simply happening on its own, without you controlling it. The heart, mind, and body are relaxed. And there's much interest, a great interest, in what's occurring. Not thinking about it, but really just simply present, interested, and receptive. And as you relax even more, with interest growing even brighter, the microscope lens powers up. And the idea, the concept of breath falls away. The mind is settled, the mind is collected. Potential distractions have little or no attraction. The subtle sensation just below the nostrils or the rising and falling movement in the belly is very clearly felt and known. With maybe the most predominant experience being maybe a soft vibration with each movement of the breath. Who's breathing? Who's moving? Who sees? Who's experiencing and knowing bodily sensation? Who's hearing? Breath isn't what you thought it was. And at least for the moments that you're that you've stopped thinking about it and are really just simply, directly and mindfully present, there's a clear discernment of the experience which includes a deep and a complete trust. A trust that this is just enough. Nothing else need be done. The mind, the heart is open, receptive, spacious, and at ease in this direct and simple connection to experience as the way of things naturally reveals itself. This is our practice. This is our training. Practice itself is very akin to creative process, which, as some of you know, or many of you know, actually, uh, is a vehicle for peeling away the layers of our habitual conditioned perceptions and reactions. And so for most of the rest of our discussion this evening, I'd like to more specifically explore the creative process as practice, with mindfulness and investigation being the root from which stem the beautiful blossoms of 
wisdom, and creative expression in their myriad manifestations. Creative process as an aspect of our practice is potentially a vehicle for peeling away the layers of our habitual conditioned perceptions and reactions. And a vehicle that has great potential for revealing the interdependent and selfless nature of all physical and mental phenomena. So, for instance, whether it be the immediacy and spontaneity of moment-to-moment creative visceral response through the moving body, or via receiving what's seen with the eye without interposing the self, meaning contacting things directly, letting the hand and the pencil follow what the eye sees without the thought of making a picture, without the thought of being creative. Or, be it the trusting of the process of thought and words arising as though from nowhere, from no one, thus creating the conditions for the immediacy and spontaneity of letting writing flow from this empty space. With each and all of these experiences about engaging in creative process as practice. In light of this, I think it's fair to say that the creative process is about forgetting what we've previously learned. A necessary step in responding more directly and seeing and sensing more precisely. Part of moving and seeing, drawing and writing is forgetting. Meaning forgetting what we think we know about the subject. Even forgetting what we've been taught. And meaning in our case here what we think we know about drawing or writing or how we should or shouldn't move the body. Forgetting stops the mind from knowing in its habitual, conditioned ways. At this point, one is confronted with the object itself, and one's usual way of knowing is arrested. The heart, the mind is open, receptive, appreciative, able to respond to the inner voice, the tone, the shape, the texture, with a genuine authority and autonomy. What is it that keeps this open-hearted being in the presence from happening? 
one artist's reply was the fear of losing control. I think that many people experience not knowing as feeling dumb, feeling stupid. But I can truly say that some of the most extraordinary experiences that I've, that I've had in which truth was revealed to me all had the quality of bearing witness, of just simply being there, just simply being here with a tremendous and yet relaxed interest, meaning a very open-hearted connection, an open-hearted mindful connection and discernment and humility and no need to make meaning. In our practice, and this includes the creative process as practice, until we can suspend the need for meaning, we can't experience the direct revelation of insight, of wisdom. Though Without a doubt, there's an ancient and subconscious urge for creative life and inventiveness in every one of us from our very beginnings. It's not so easy to be unarmed, to be without our habitual ways and self-centered identifications. Fear can sometimes leap up in us. And so we train the heart, we train the mind slowly and with great care to see the nature of our constraints and to clearly begin to let go. The poet Rilke exhorts us to return to things in themselves. But the way of them can be quite difficult as we're faced with our self, our seemingly set and solid self. It seems that we're really quite overtrained regarding ourselves. We're usually the complete, total center of our attention in one way or another. So consequently, it can be quite difficult to come and see this ehipasika, as the Buddha invites us, beyond this notion of a self. Engaging in the creative process with joyful interest and open-hearted mindfulness can really be a wonderful vehicle towards freeing up honesty, authenticity, and the essence energy of creativity, all of which helps to create the conditions 
that allow the direct revelation of insight into the way of things. I've learned a lot from children in this arena. In my early 30s, I taught art at an alternative school for some years. And the five to eight-year-olds loved painting. And sometimes I asked them to paint in relationship to a particular theme. But often it was just um, free expression painting. And one morning as I was walking around the room, the painting room, and looking and commenting on paintings that were in process and uh, some that were already finished, one little boy uh, said to me, you always like all of our paintings. How come? Well, this little boy noticed something, and he asked the right question. Children sometimes have a way of saying things that kind of stop us in our tracks. So I thought, yes, I do, silently to myself. Yes, I do. How come? And this was many years ago, and I don't remember exactly what I said to him, but something about honesty and expressing from the inside and how could I not feel anything but appreciation I could ask questions, and I could occasionally make uh, suggestions, but there really wasn't anything at all to dislike or to feel critical about. Because what each person painted was their honest expression at that moment. So this little boy seemed to understand what I was saying, because he shook his head up and down kind of while I was talking, and he had this big beaming smile on his face. So it seemed that it got communicated. As adults, can we be so unarmed in our creative expression while at the same time being mindful and seeing clearly, receptive to the right answers that show up to our perennial questions regarding the way towards being truly happy and at ease in this life. Can we be so unarmed so as to allow the life force within us to catalyze into creative life with a purity and intensity devoid of personal pride and self-judgment, no conceit of self, and simply be what we are by birthright. One of the creative endeavors that's been part of my life off and on over the years since I was in my early 20s, or maybe even before that, is the making of portrait sculpture with a particular person uh, being the live model for each piece of work. 
And this work has been a very deep and powerful direct practice and a metaphor uh, of practice for me, particularly in relationship to the cultivation of mindfulness, investigation and discernment, effort, joy, tranquility, concentration, and wisdom, which are, in fact, the seven factors of enlightenment. So just to share a little bit of this, because I think um, it may be a useful illustration in the context of this retreat, and particularly uh, now as we uh, enter into the seeing-drawing portion of our practice uh, tomorrow. In order to create a a likeness of a person in clay, a tremendous, (coughs) excuse me, a tremendous uh, depth of mindful investigation must take place. A head, its shape, the neck and shoulders, the face, how to see it as a whole, and then know it, both in its wholeness and in its particulars, so that the seeing and the knowing can be transferred through the eyes, the mind, the heart, and body, out through the hands and the fingers into the clay. a daunting and actually impossible task if one doesn't begin to see what one is looking at simply as hundreds or maybe thousands of relationships that actually change with each angle of seeing. And so the subject's head and face begin to break down into a series of relational forms, forms that only exist in relationship to each other. There's no head, no face, no person as we ordinarily know it. There are just a series of relationships to be known. It's a very intimate process, much more so than if I just keep looking at the whole form. The completely unique characteristics of the face in front of me become very clearly and deeply known, but not as any fixed or separate entity. And the universals of all human faces become known quite intimately. At the same time, the concepts of solidity, fixedness, and separateness lose their habitual potency and actually quite thoroughly fall away at times. What is this nose, this eye, this chin, any nose, any eye, any chin. 
seeing and knowing through the microscope of an open-hearted and deeply connected mindful investigation from revolving angles, moment after moment after moment. Seeing and knowing the space between the inside corner of an eye in relationship to the downward slope of the eye's lower edge, in relationship to the bulging curvature of the eyeball as it rounds out to touch the outer edge and corner of the skin around the eye, and on and on and on. With all of this seeing and knowing coming out through my fingers into the forming of the clay, little by little. And as though magically, a face emerges out of the clay, a face that in fact bears the likeness and projects some of the quality of the liveliness of this human being sitting in front of me. It's actually not uh, so easy to render this creative process into words. So I hope that it's um, been at least somewhat communicated and somewhat helpful for you. And as I think I've already mentioned at some point, insight practice is itself an art and in many ways very close to the creative process. And as I'm sure some of you are aware of, and as we'll continue discovering as the rest of this retreat continues to unfold, that this is so. During one particular time period in my life when I was quite deeply immersed in the sculpture work, I went to see a a film at a movie theater And I was quite struck that evening um, by all of the faces of all of the people in the lobby of the theater, each one having all of the same equipment, (laughs) noses, eyes, mouths, uh, cheeks, chins, foreheads, etc. And yet each person's face being totally unique, just based on the tiny nuances of how all the parts were interrelated with each other. And my awareness that evening at the movie theater just kept jumping back and forth, back and forth, seeing the diversity in the one and the one in the diversity. That evening they weren't separate. In the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Flower Ornament Sutra, which is actually revered as a treasure of sensual imagery and uh, considered to be one of the highest teachings of the Buddha in Chinese Mahayana Buddhism. There's a short section in this sutta that elaborates on my very brief and very small experience that night in the movie theater. And I'd like to share this little piece of the sutta with you. The bodhisattva sees the interdependent nature 
of all things, sees in one dharma all dharmas, sees in all dharmas the one dharma, sees the multiplicity in the one and the one in the multiplicity, sees the one in the immeasurable and the immeasurable in the one, and in this case the immeasurable meaning the indescribable, the flow, the process of life as it unfolds. And the sutra goes on, birth and existence of all dharmas is of a changing nature and thus unreal and cannot touch the enlightened ones. The nature of things naturally reveals itself. It's not hidden. We enter into the mystery through the intimacy of our practice rather than staying at a distance, rather than staying separate from it. There's a very uh, lucid and succinct quote from a Japanese uh, philosopher and teacher of the way of tea, Yanagi, that says this. They saw, before all else they saw, they were able to see, ancient mysteries flew from this wellspring of seeing. In very precise and sometimes minute ways, or at times through a very much more spacious and less precise mode of mindfulness and investigation, we come to know this, the not-self, the not-separate, the non-dual nature of things. Anything. All things. Ordinary things. For a moment, we might touch into the absolute truth of the relative world. It's not self-nature. It's not separate nature. It's not solid nature. And it makes a difference in how we live our life. Because on a deeply intuitive level, we've contacted the cause of suffering and the way to its end. Mindfulness, investigation, and discernment are our guides through what at times might feel like an impenetrable forest of experience. And of course, as we all know, life can be challenging and quite difficult at times. Practice can be challenging and quite difficult at times. This is not new news to any of you. Along the way, we find that it takes a deep willingness and a certain courage to traverse this path of awakening. And people sometimes describe their experience at particular points along the path as feeling as though they're a spiritual warrior. 
I think that many of us, much of the time, view experience and view our life as a string of blessings or a string of curses. You may know that attitude. (laughs) Through our practice, our life as our practice, we learn not to get caught up in the attachment to the blessings and the aversion to the curses. With mindful presence and clear discernment as the ground of our life, we learn how to view and relate to life as a continual opportunity to deepen our practice and to deepen our understanding. A really a continual opportunity for learning. With all of it, affording us the amazing opportunity of awakening. And I think uh, for many of us, if we're really candid, we may occasionally feel like a spiritual warrior in the process. Some years ago, um, it became clear that uh, I needed to have an old filling removed and a crown uh, put on this same molar. So, from one point of view, maybe a curse. I'm severely, quite severely, allergic to an array of local anesthetics. So, no Novocaine uh, or any of the other local anesthetics that are used for dental work. They're not for me at all. So, maybe another curse from a particular point of view. But I have um, a really deep and very strong practice. So definitely a great blessing. The appointment uh, with the dentist was really quite a challenge. (laughs) The challenge of continually staying relaxed and staying open to the experience of the moment with no anesthetic. Of course. Focusing and connecting with all that was going on in my mouth and noticing the constant change of each sensation. Sometimes very strong, very intense sensation and sometimes a more mild sensation. Being present from its beginning all the way through to its end. As soon as I would lose my concentration, my mindfulness, and the clarity of discernment, ignorance would immediately move in. What was merely being experienced as varying degrees of unpleasant quickly became very strong disliking. And then what would happen was that the moment verged on becoming an unbearable moment. And there was a moment during this process when I completely lost the concentrated mindful connection to what was occurring and my body jerked very strongly in reaction to a particular sensation which uh, surprised the dentist quite a bit and it was a big wake-up call for me. And it was in moments... uh, uh, a great surprise to me uh, how easy it was to just be there 
as long as I was clearly and purely present just with what was happening, just with what was going on. Time actually lost its ordinary parameters, like it does sometimes in an intensive retreat. I wasn't waiting for anything to end. And in fact, there were some surprising moments of feeling like, well, I I could just be here forever and that would be okay. I'm glad it wasn't forever honestly it did feel that way so what's a curse what's a blessing as our practice takes deeper and deeper root its blessings begin to permeate all the corners of our life all the nooks and crannies of our life Mindfulness and investigation of states grounded in interest and an open-hearted, non-judgmental receptivity is our guide through what at times might feel like an impenetrable forest of experience. We can't expect or depend on something outside of our own mind and heart or someone else to do it for us. The Buddha's invitation is ehipasika. Come and see. Come and see for yourself. When we connect and when we see clearly, the next step is actually right in front of us, one step at a time. So a story, a personal story about hiking that might have been on this trail right out here, I'm not sure, but one of these trails in the ski valley here and in the autumn, not in the summer, some years ago. And I went for a day-long hike with a friend up, up, very likely could have been this trail. Um, uh, And my hiking buddy, the person that I usually hike with, is a long-time Dhamma practitioner. So we hike in silence. And we usually walk alone, one one in front of the other, one behind the other, however you want to look at it, uh, but not very far away from each other. And the only often the only time we speak together when we hike um, is during a, a rest break. We might speak a little bit, and during lunch, our lunch time. Hiking days uh, like this for my friend and I are really some of our most treasured non-retreat practice times. There's a very deep and connected relationship through all of the sense doors to the surrounding world and to our bodily sensations and movement and to the feelings and the various states of mind that come come and go through the heart and the mind as we take our time making our way up the trail. And as we were wending our way up through this particular uh, Rocky Mountain landscape that day, uh, two young people, uh, quite young, uh, late teens or early 20s, uh, came up behind us and they were moving really fast. Actually, they were kind of running up the, up the mountain. 
And each of them, uh, in their hand, they were holding a small yellow object in their hand, which they were quite intently kind of holding out in front of them as they were running up the trail. We exchanged a very cursory hello, uh, and uh, I asked them what the uh, yellow plastic object was, and I was told it was a GPS. (laughs) this was enough years ago and I'm kind of ignorant of some of this stuff anyways but I I didn't know what it was I didn't know what that was the GPS they were in such a hurry uh, that there was actually no opportunity to ask them what is a GPS so we we didn't ask them but my friend um, said she knew a little bit about what they were and she said that it's an instrument that tells you where you are. (laughs) Well, as soon as she said this, um, we looked at each other and we started kind of an amazement, and then we started to laugh. And we couldn't stop laughing for quite a while. That particular day, where my friend and I were, all along the trail, was being connected with and known over and over and over again in so many ways and on so many levels as we were slowly making our way up the mountain. The intermediary of a global positioning system just seemed so absurd at that point and in this setting. So a poem called Lost by David Wagner. Stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here. You must treat it as a powerful stranger, must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen. It answers, I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying, here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree, a bush does, is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. So again, ehipasika. Come and see. Come and see for yourself. The Buddha, with his great clarity and compassion, spoke about what he called the nutriment for the arising, the development, fulfillment, and the perfection of this enlightenment factor of investigation or discernment of states. He said that we must give a wise and careful attention to both beneficial and unbeneficial states. 
beneficial states such as loving-kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity, as well as to the so-called hindrances. Hindrances are sleepiness, restlessness, the wanting mind, the aversive mind, the doubting mind. He said it's essential that we give this wise and careful attention to states of suffering, to the cause of suffering, and to the end of suffering. And again and again, the Buddha directs us towards seeing and knowing the particular individual characteristics of both beneficial or wholesome and unbeneficial or unwholesome states. He again and again also directs us towards seeing and knowing the three universal characteristics of all states of body and mind and of everything around us. The essential unsatisfactoriness, the ephemerality or the changing nature, the impermanence, and the selfless nature of all mental and bodily experiences. This is really the primary nutriment for the arising, the development, fulfillment, and perfection of these factors of investigation and clear comprehension. With these factors really being primarily what counters delusion, primarily what counters ignorance. The Buddha also tells us to, that we should ask appropriate questions and that it's helpful to reflect on the real possibility of deep understanding. We're encouraged to associate with people who have understanding and it's suggested that we don't spend too much time with those who don't have understanding. The Buddha spoke in a very beautiful way about the internal purification of the heart and mind as, and these are his words, as being like the lamp, the light of a lamp's flame that arises with a clean lamp bowl wick. A clean, excuse me, let me say that again the Buddha's words, like the light of a lamp's flame that arises with a clean lamp bowl, wick, and oil as its support, and that bodily and mental formations become evident and clear to one who tries to comprehend them with what he called a purified base, meaning a mind, a heart that's cleansed, through the moral integrity of sila and the purification of the heart and mind with the development of concentration, samadhi. Balancing our faculties of faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and understanding will nurture investigation. And at some point, we may find that we might like to make a resolve 
to incline the mind, to incline the heart towards these first two factors of awakening, the factors of mindfulness and the factor of investigation. Clear discrimination of bodily and mental states is a requisite for awakening, a requisite for liberation, a requisite for the arising of wisdom. And so, in this light, the particular factor that we've been exploring uh, this evening is spoken about as the wisdom factor. There's a difference between a person with a mind unconsciously steeped in mine, me, and I, and one who lives, sees, senses, feels, and knows through a mind steeped in mindful awareness and investigation of states of body and mind. The difference is that in the narrowness of the mind steeped in me, mine, and I, there's a very strong and sticky identification with all of the hopes and fears that arise, which is a very painful way, place to live one's life from. When the mind, when the heart is steeped in the factors of mindfulness and investigation, one isn't very often caught or thrown off or ruffled or confused by inner and outer events. We see, we sense, we feel what is. We know it beyond the seeming appearances. We aren't caught nearly as often by hopes and fears in relationship to the moment's experiences. They come and we let them go as they naturally do anyways. Our practice affords us the great potential gift of not clinging, not being identified, not being identified with and attached to experience all of the time. What is, is just what is, moment to moment, more and more often. Mindfulness, direct investigation, and discrimination of experience is what brings the deepest understanding. Otherwise, our understanding is based only in the intellect. It's merely cerebral understanding really a kind of imaginary understanding. And as many of you know, at least some of the time, it's impossible to think our way out of tension, stress, confusion. It's impossible to think our way out of suffering. And it's impossible to think our way into truly letting go. We can't think our way to awakening. We can't think our way to liberation. 
Awakening is beyond or beneath, we could say, the intellect. It's beyond or beneath concept. So how can we possibly use concept to get us there? When insight is born, when understanding is born, it's deep and integrated and simple. It's cellular, as someone once described their experience to me. The great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj tells us, and these are his words, the mind, the thinking mind, is interested in what happens, while mindful awareness is interested in the mind. The heart, we could say, the mind, the heart. And then he goes on and he says, the child is after the toy, but the mother watches the child, not the toy. With investigation, we move out of the dark and come into the light, the light of wisdom. And in reference to his own enlightenment, the Buddha said, the eye is born, knowledge was born, wisdom was born, understanding was born, light was born. As you walk and sit and eat and do your yogi job and learn to simply and easily let the body move. As you spend time learning to truly see, which is what drawing flows from, and as you spend time open-heartedly writing, as you make your way through this retreat, rather than being caught up in old, conditioned, and sometimes very unskillful habits, mindfulness, investigation, and clear discernment provide the best medicine for the great gift of engagement at its very best. Creative expression, our life as creative expression that occurs occurs purely from our personal experience is an expression of our humanness and our perception of reality, beautiful or otherwise. It may manifest as spontaneous expressions of sensing and feeling or as a reflection of insight, a reflection of understanding. As we explore various creative moda- the creative modalities through this retreat and in our life as a whole, with honesty and with humility and an interested enthusiasm, we can be sure that this is an important and essential aspect of the path towards reaching and understanding the truth of ourselves our not-self nature and the not-self nature of all things.
as we practice and learn, we find that our life is unfolding and becoming more and more from a place of selflessness, from the place of a healthy emptiness. With the thread of self having been pulled out, we find that we experience creative expression flowing more spontaneously and freely in myriad ways throughout our life. As awakening beings, we're moving towards our inheritance from the Buddha by simply becoming a real human being. A very beautiful description that Sayadaw Upandita uses for one who is awake, a real human being. We're simply becoming a wise, open-hearted, and caring human being with the innate capacity for creativity and inventiveness flowing freely. And this is really the greatest gift that we can offer to this world. I'd like to close the talk with a poetic teaching from the Buddha. And he called it a single excellent night. Let me not revive the past or on the future build my hopes. For the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let me see each presently arisen state. Let me know this and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today, the effort must be made. Tomorrow, death may come, who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly by day, by night, it is in her and him, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. So let's sit silently for just a couple of moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.